Hello, greetings. Welcome back to the um, Home Bible Study Podcast. Uh, we have come to um, our study, a part of our study in the letter to the Hebrews that makes a lot of assumptions. There's a lot of knowledge that is assumed that you have. Uh, the writer is speaking to Hebrew people. Um, they the, the Word of God and the Old Testament was very much a part of their culture, who they were, how they were raised. So there's a lot of things here that are assumed that may not be a common knowledge to those of us today who are um, not as versed, well-versed in the Old Testament and how that the Bible as a whole has um, this one message, overarching message, love letter from God, you might say. So uh, for those of us who may not have that foundational knowledge about the Hebrew culture and the, uh, the past, uh, uh, what they call the, the law and the prophets and the fathers, I want to do a little, I don't know, let's call it uh, a little review of some of the things that are very important to know, the basic principles that we need to know to really get the most out of what we're going to be studying uh, subsequently here in the letter to the Hebrews um, in verse 7 and on. And I just want to make sure that everybody gets the most out of this study. And I think these this this is going to help, you know, kind of covering these basic principles. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with these things, consider it to be a refresher course, kind of a reminder. For those of you who are not as familiar, then I think it's going to add a lot of meaning and substance to the things that we're going to be learning together and studying. So with that said, let's go ahead and cover some of these things. So some of the principles that are reoccurring are uh, have to do with the Levitical priesthood. And the last study we compared uh, from Hebrews chapter 7 uh, through 1 through verse 10, we kind of compared the Levitical priesthood, which is the one that was established uh, in the nation Israel with the Hebrew people, uh, the one that everybody's very familiar with. And we compare that to Melchizedek, who has been introduced in this letter as another priesthood. And we have found out that the Melchizedekian, if I can say that, priesthood is the one in which the New Testament is based on. Even though this is someone, a priesthood that was first introduced to us back in Genesis, uh, God had already purposed for that priesthood to be the priesthood of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And so now these Hebrew believers have to be re-educated to realize that, wait a minute, everything that we've learned and we've based all of our life upon, that was just to prepare us for something else that was coming that was better. And that's the overarching message to the, to the Hebrew people in this letter is that Christ 
the new covenant in his blood, the new testament, Jesus is better. Okay, Jesus is better. He is giving us better things. Now, this came at a time when nothing in their life seemed to be better. Uh, they were uh, enduring great persecution. But they also had this fellowship. They had a very strong fellowship. And that's what happens when you go through trials with other people, other believers. It builds um, connections that are very strong. And that's what was happening. They were they were experiencing that. And so they needed this encouragement and this understanding of what it was that Jesus had accomplished on their behalf. Because, you know, they were looking at the big picture and they couldn't see all the little details and how it all tied together. And thankfully, the Lord provided for this writer to the Hebrews to make those connections for them and to show them what was really happening and in the same way we get to enjoy uh, the same kinds of blessings of knowing you know well how does all this connect and you know what is our role in this big picture and relative to everything that God has done like who are we to God and where are we in the the revelation of God to man because we know that revelation is progressive and uh, oftentimes it's described as ages. Um, there's a you know dispensational theology that uh, breaks down each of the dispensations of God's revelation to man and how that he has revealed himself in a progressive way. And you can think of it as a relationship. God began a relationship with man and we're going through all the phases of that relationship. God is so vast, so complex, so overwhelming that the mind of man cannot really understand or perceive all of his perfections uh, or be able to really appreciate who and what God is uh, all at once. It takes time. And so God is patient and he is revealing different aspects of who he is what his purpose is and how he's going to accomplish his purpose because we as members of that relationship that intimacy that is being built over time we need to know those things and it's not that he needs to know them he's doing all of this for our benefit and you have to always keep that in mind that everything god does is for the benefit of those who he loves because he knows all of these things. He's sitting there. It's kind of like a parent. The parent already knows what you need and why you need it. But as children grow, they have to learn those things. And it takes time for us to appreciate what our parents were doing. And a lot of times we don't understand. And wouldn't it have been nice if they were able to really explain to us why they were doing what they were doing, when they were doing it, and a purpose for it. But there's no time for that. They're too busy parenting and trying to, you know, survive. But God has that time. And he's, he's um, taking the time to express and to communicate all these things to us through his word. So we're going to look at some of these basic principles that are associated with um, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant that we, we uh, live in now. And there's some basic principles that translate that never change. 
And there are some things that uh, we need to compare and contrast so that we can see how that we live and we're in a relationship with God, um, a better relationship than the one that they experienced in the past. Now, does that mean that Adam enjoyed a better relationship to God than I am or me better than Adam? No, I think it was more different. There's a different relationship because if you think about it, Adam had immediate access to God before sin, right? So he knew God in a way that I do not know God, right? I can't know him like that apart from sin because I live in a world of sin. So Adam had a different experience, but there's some things about his experience that are the same because God does not change. It's us. We're the ones that change. So this progressive revelation uh, has taught us a lot of things. And if we take the time to really meditate on these things, and I just want to encourage you to do that, to really meditate and go to the Lord and ask him to elaborate and expand and make these things uh, a part of who you are and your relationship with him, then you're going to experience, okay, you're going to have a taste of what heaven is like. And uh, it, it's something that changes you and you can never go back to the way you were. So it's really important that we do that. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he's given us his word so that we can grow that way. So without further ado, let's look at some of these basic principles and how they relate to our study in Hebrews. And again, remember, these are just going to be principles that help us to understand the weight and give us a little more context to the things that are alluded to by the writer in Hebrews as we proceed. So the first principle that I would like for us to see is that there are certain uh, basic principles in our approach to God. We, you cannot have a relationship with God apart from approaching him in a way that's acceptable to him. Now, we may have an idea of what we think is acceptable, but God is, has established very early on that we can't approach him any way we want, that there are rules, there are guidelines to this approach, and all of those things have to do with sin. Because if you notice, in the beginning when he created Adam, there were no rules. They would interact with one another freely. Uh, the approach was unencumbered. Uh, none of that was in place. He, I mean, it was very casual um, type of relationship between them. But once sin got involved, that changed everything. Because the holiness of God dictates that he remain separate from sin, right? He is righteous, he is holy, and that holiness is who he is. And sin is the opposite of that, right? So sin became the enemy, and those who are sinners become the enemy. So the sin problem is what separated us from God and made these rules for approaching and interacting with him necessary. So sin, the first principle is sin separated man from God eternally, right? It's an eternal separation. So 
Um, that's part of why there has to be these rules. First rule of uh, interacting with a righteous God is there has to be a blood sacrifice. So we see this in Genesis 3.20 when sin had come into the world through uh, Adam and he, uh, God was uh, dealing with him and Eve and the sin issue and they were, they were naked and they knew they were naked. And so God put coverings upon them, animal skin coverings, Genesis 3.20. So what does this tell us? It tells us that sin needed to be dealt with um, so that God can continue to interact with man and man with God. We had to deal with the sin issue. And it's not that they were naked. That's not the sin. The sin is that they disobeyed God and they had a knowledge, um, a awareness of uh, sin that they had didn't have before. And it affected the entire world. It affected everything, their entire environment, who they were, who they are, and it's corrupting. So God had to deal with that. The, the punishment for sin is death. That, that is a, another basic principle. There is no separating death from sin. God is holy and righteous, and his holiness and righteousness says, I must deal with sin. And the consequence for sin is death. He told Adam and Eve that. He said, hey, if you eat of this fruit, you disobey me, the consequence, and that same day you're going to die. That's the consequence. So somebody had to die. So God killed these animals and placed the um, animal skins on Adam and Eve. So that's a constant reminder that those animals died because of what they did. And those animals were provided uh, by God for them. And that's a principle that we're going to see throughout uh, God's revelation to man is that sin must be dealt with. And that's how he dealt with it in Genesis 3.20 in the form of the animal skins because you can't get a skin off an animal without shedding blood. So then we're going to see another principle with this blood sacrifice because, you know, you could, some, some might say, well, you know, that's a stretch. Well, let's, let's go into greater detail. Um, the blood sacrifice was also established in Genesis 4. So we know the story. A lot of people know the story of Cain and Abel. That Cain brought an offering to God from the fruit of the field. That, you know, he was a great gardener. He was a uh, horticulturalist. Uh, he, he was extraordinaire. You know, he's really good. So he brought uh, the fruit of the field, the things that he labored and, and he grew. And he, br he brought the very best of what he grew. And uh, Abel, his brother, well, he was, you know, he tended the flock. And so he brought animals to sacrifice. And it says that God did not, was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. Well, why is that? I mean, it's not like he brought bad fruit or bad vegetables. It's because the sacrifice needed to worship God, because you can't worship God without the sin issue being dealt with. And you can't deal with it with um, vegetables and fruit. 
I mean, we saw that with Adam and Eve. They uh, recognized that they were naked. They were dealing with the sin issue. And their reasoning as to how to deal with it was to get fig leaves, sew them together, and cover themselves up. Well, they were covered, but they never dealt with the sin from a righteous standpoint, from God's standpoint, because there was no shedding of blood. So God gave them animal skins to show them the principle that there must be a blood sacrifice. Um, and so here, Cain didn't learn that lesson. So he brought, again, uh, the fruits and vegetables. And, you know, God said, hey, if you would just do the right thing, there would be no reason for you to be angry, you know? Just, you have to approach me according to what I say. And here we see Cain was not happy with that. And he took his anger out towards God on his brother Abel. So, so again, we see that there's, it's a clearly established from the beginning that there is no, um, there is no covering of sin. There's no dealing with the sin issue without the shedding of blood. So we also um, see a principle of substitutionary sacrifice. So there needed to be a sacrifice for sin. Uh, in both of these cases, in Genesis 3.20 with Adam and Eve, and also with uh, Genesis 4.5 with Cain, there's also the principle of a substitutionary sacrifice. And we see that kind of... Um, expanded upon in Leviticus 23:19 and Leviticus 4:32 or two good verses for that. So this principle um, was well established because the time between Genesis and Leviticus we're talking you know thousands of years. So um, this was a clearly established principle when it was introduced, to the Levites and to the nation Israel when they became a nation, this was no surprise to them. Like, well, what is it? Why are we sacrificing animals? It wasn't a shock to them. It was already established. God was just saying to them, look, you want a law? You want to, you say, hey, we want a law. We don't want to just trust you and walk with you. We want a law. You tell us what to do and we'll do it. That way we know we'll be safe. So God gave them a law. And he, he didn't give them a law because as a blessing, he gave them a law. It was really a burden to them. You know, it was a judgment. He said, okay, well, if you don't want to just trust me and you want to try to live by a bunch of rules, let me show you what those rules look like. Here's 620 of them that you have to live by. Not just 10, not just the first 10 everybody talks about, but uh, over 600 different rules that you'd have to live by if you want to be perfect in my sight. So um, Leviticus is the telling of the law or the giving of the law. And the substitutionary sacrifice was very clearly stated. And you can read that, like I said, in Leviticus 23, 19 and Leviticus 4.32 are two good examples. So we see that to approach God and to worship him because sin is you know, in the way, we have to have a blood sacrifice and we need a substitutionary sacrifice right so that means that sacrifice represents us and our sin so there has to be the shedding of blood and there has to be somebody has to pay that penalty 
uh, on our behalf. And we see both of those clearly established. So next I want to talk about the tabernacle because the whole point of this blood sacrifice, substitutionary death, it's not for the sake of killing animals and shedding blood. I mean, um, this is not a horror movie. Uh, there's a very distinct purpose for this. And God is very patient to describe and to lay this out to us. Now, the whole point of this is because there's this chasm between man and God because of sin. Because of the disobedience of Adam, now we have this sin problem, right? Um, and it has separated man from God. And that's where we find ourselves today. Uh, there's an issue with this separation. And sin is not just a temporary separation. It is an eternal separation from God. So that is the, the big problem for mankind. That's the problem in our world. It's the problem with us individually. As individuals, sin is the problem that causes all the strife in our relationships that keeps us apart from one another and keeps us separated from God. So God has made a provision. He has provided a way for us to have interaction with him and by dealing with this sin issue. Okay, and that's through this blood sacrifice and the substitutionary sacrifice. So next, there's a progression here. So we, we move along. We've talked about Genesis and Leviticus. Well, next we're going to go to Exodus because remember, God is doing a progressive revelation of who he is, what his rules are, and how we're to properly interact and meet with him uh, in light of our sin issue. So next we're going to talk about the tabernacle. Now, for those of you who don't know what the tabernacle is or was, it was basically a tent. And uh, when the people, the nation, were they were first delivered out of Egypt and they're wandering through the wilderness, they had to have a way to interact with God. So Moses uh, initially went to Mount Sinai, right? They, they, and he left the people and said, you know, I'm going to go up here and meet with God. And the people saw the thundering and the lightning and the rule that said that even if a beast should come near the mountain, it should be stoned to death. So if you're going to kill a beast that wanders up near the mountain, then how much worse is it going to be for us as people? So the people were terrified. They're like, Moses, yeah, you go up there and talk to God. We don't want to go near that. And so they were terrified. And so there was a lot of fear. Because the holiness and righteousness of God was visible. They could see his power and his righteousness and his holiness from afar off. And sin prompts in us fear of God. That's what sin does. Because sin has to be judged. And we're sinners. And once you become aware of the fact that you are a sinner, and that that sin demands uh, the righteous judgment of God, there's fear. And so that's why we need a representative, right? And so that's what Moses was. He was a representative of the people. He went to God on their behalf. So 
in doing that, he got the law because, you know, um, the people were like, well, we want, you know, all the people around us, these other nations, they have laws and they go by and, you know, their rules for their, you know, worship of their gods and, you know, all the idols and everything else that they worship. We want rules, too, so that we can, you know, because we can do that. You know, this whole trust in you and just, you know, believe in you and following you. That's no, no, we don't want that. That requires faith and trust. And, you know, we're not comfortable with those things based on what we know about you. So give us a law and we'll go by that law. So that way we can check ourselves and make sure that there's no way you would have reason to judge our sin. So the whole giving of the law was a judgment and God saw that. And uh, he, he said, OK, you know, if that's what you guys want. I'm going to give it to you. And he did. So part of giving that law was they needed a way to interact with God. Uh, Moses was the kind of mouthpiece for God and he delivered the message from God to the people. And they wanted a way as they moved through the wilderness to meet with God and to, cause you know, they couldn't go back to Mount Sinai every time. So they wanted God's presence to be with them so that they can, you know, meet with him. So it says in the Bible that God appeared to them as a pillar of fire by day and they would follow that pillar of fire. Wherever it moved, the whole camp would get up and follow it. Um, there was horns that were blown to notify everybody because there was you know, millions of people wandering around in this wilderness. And they had these horns that were blown to let the people know that it's time for us to move. And they did everything in order by tribe and everything. And they would move and follow this pillar of fire. You know, and then the same thing, at, uh, that was at night. And by day, they would follow a pillar of smoke. So at nighttime, it was fire when they had to move at night so they could see. And in the daytime, it was a pillar of smoke. And so whenever they would stop and camp somewhere, they couldn't just walk up to the smoke or to the fire and say, you know, God, we have a question. We'd like to get some direction from you. That's not how it worked. So God had them build a tabernacle and the tabernacle. All it was, was a, if you can imagine a tent, right? It was a tent that was shaped like a rectangle basically. And they could erect it and they could take it down. So it was, it was something that they could uh, move around with them. And whenever they posted up in a camp, they would erect this tabernacle because that's where they met with God. And that was the, symbol of God's presence in the camp. And um, so the tabernacle was very important. It was a meeting place is what I like to describe it as between the people and God, right? So here we go back to that principle of how does man interact with God with sin being present. So we see God is always making an effort throughout history to establish a relationship with man and to make a way for man to have access to him. And we see that throughout this, uh, this account and story of the people of uh, the nation Israel, that God always had a 
ministry or a testimony or a way that he would interact with the people. Um, and the tabernacle was probably one of the most visible, tangible representations of that. And you can, you can learn about the tabernacle in Exodus 26, 1 through 30, where it talks about the tabernacle. Um, the tabernacle had, was very specific in how it was to be made. God was very specific. He didn't let them just build it any way they wanted because the tabernacle had a purpose beyond just meeting with God. The tabernacle was a physical representation of the meeting place between God and his people, right? Um, and it was uh, pivotal to understanding the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And we'll, we'll kind of come back to that. But the more you learn about the way the tabernacle was made, the more you'll understand how it represented so perfectly the Lord Jesus and his coming. And it's amazing to think that this, this uh, tent uh, from so many years ago could represent something so pivotal to us right now. Uh, so sin, also another principle that we need to understand about sin is that sin created a need right for work okay prior to sin there was no need for all this work um the work that's associated with worship uh, because there is work associated with uh, worship there are um there was a, a levitical priesthood the whole purpose of that entire levitical priesthood which you know you had 12 tribes there was one whole tribe of people that was dedicated to only the work and service of the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple of ministering to the people, all the work associated with worship. Anything that had to do with the worship and the approach to God was filtered through the Levites. That's why that book is called Leviticus, okay, because it was the establishment of the Levites the Levitical priesthood and setting them aside as priests. And they did the work. Um, Moses, uh, Aaron, and then all the sons of Aaron were became the Levites. They became the priests of the nation. And the work was established, uh, the principle of work established with sin and how they're related is in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, when God uh, told Adam, well, this is the result of sin. And he said, the, you're going to, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat bread. So there's going to be work now. There's going to be effort. There's going to be contention. There's going to be strife associated with your life as it relates to uh, living your life in a way that is pleasing to me. And that sin created this work right that no man could ever deal with like there was no way we could work our way past the sin problem there had to be uh, other things put in place by god to address the sin problem as we've discussed before the substitutionary sacrifice the blood uh, uh, that had to be shed uh, this tabernacle that allowed for a place of meeting 
where uh, we could approach God properly, right? And there's all these rules associated with the tabernacle. And the more you study the tabernacle, you'll see there's there's uh, the outer court and there's a brazen altar that dealt with uh, sin. And then uh, that's where the sacrifice was burnt. And you had uh, the uh, holy place when you entered in and only the Levites could enter into the holy place and only certain Levites uh, could enter in and do that work. There was uh, furniture inside that uh, tabernacle. There was a table, a table of showbread. There was these lampstands for light. Um, there was a censer, you know, um, of incense that they would burn. And that represent, all these things represent different things that are very significant. And if you, we ever do a study of the tabernacle, I'll go into detail on that. But the, the point is, is that there was all this, the furniture that was there, there were no pews, there were no chairs. And the reason why is because there was work that was never ending. Those priests did never, they never stopped offering. They never sat down. They were, they were busy doing things all the time because sin created this work that we have to do in order to have a relationship with God, to have interaction with him. There has to be work associated with it. Now, sin has created that, that problem. So another principle that we need to see about the tabernacle is that the tabernacle was a shadow of things in heaven. So if we want to interact with God, we interact with God on his terms. He does not interact with us on our terms, right? He is the creator. So he tells us how to approach him. And so he made the provision of this tabernacle and the tabernacle was in and of itself a lesson. Uh, it was a picture or a shadow, the Bible says, of things in heaven. So try to imagine this in your mind. Try to imagine that it's a bright sunny day, right? Sun shining super bright and there's a plane flying overhead. But you don't look up to see the plane. You look down and you see the shadow of that plane moving across the ground, right? So that shadow is not the plane. It is a, you know, image that's being cast on earth because of the light that shines above the plane. And so because the light is being blocked, you know, by that huge airplane, it creates this shadow in the shape of the plane. It's not even in the perfect shape of the plane. It doesn't have the substance of the plane. You couldn't learn about that airplane in detail just from the shadow, but you do get an idea of what that plane looks like. That is what the tabernacle did for us or for those people um, during that time, because Jesus is that light shining down from heaven and we're he's in his throne room and the tabernacle was to be a shadow picture of the throne room of god so um when you look at how that uh, the all the ornate uh curtains that were placed over this basically it was a tent and they had these ornate curtains in several layers and all the beautiful colors and the gold and the silver inlays all this beauty that was associated with this mobile tent on from the inside. 
those are pictures of heaven and the things of his throne room. And you had the holy place, you know, you had the outer court, you had the holy place, and you had the holy of holies. And there was a veil that separated uh, of one piece of linen that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, certain of the Levitical priests could go into the uh, holy place and they would they would serve in there and they would do certain things that are associated with the service of uh, man being able to approach God. But the Holy of Holies, no one went in there. Only the high priest that was chosen once a year could go in that Holy of Holies. And there was very strict rules and regulations associated with going in there. The certain day that you could do it, the certain person who could go in, and what they were to do when they went in there. And inside this Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, you know, another box, right? Uh, it was just a, a box and it was, you know, a beautiful box. I mean, it was, you know, uh, inlaid with gold all around it. And it had two angels at the top of the, the lid on top and the angels were facing one another. And below those angels was the mercy seat. And that was a picture of heaven. That was a picture of the throne room of God and how that there's angels surrounding him all the time. They all, all they ever do is proclaim his holiness and his righteousness. So that was a picture or a shadow man-made of the real heavenly things that are uh, above. And it's associated very strongly with the approach to God. You have to do it in a certain way. That tabernacle had to be built uh, in a very certain way. It had to be set up in a very certain way and taken down in a certain way. Um, and like I said, the more you study the tabernacle, you can see that. But that was what the tabernacle was. So what is it that the tabernacle provided? So now we've moved... Uh, you know, further along in the revelation of God, we move from the original sin, uh, the establishment of the blood sacrifice, substitutionary death, uh, the Levitical um, law that was given that spoke of the righteous requirements of God and how that you are to uh, interact with him. And now we have this tabernacle, which is a very physical, tangible a representation of these things, right? So we move from the principles uh, to something tangible, right? God gave man something very tangible to be able to go to and to interact and to have uh, a place to meet with God. We can't go to heaven. He's not going to come here to us. He's God. We have to go to him based on his requirements. So he was gracious and gave this tabernacle to give us that opportunity, or at least the people of the nation Israel who were the original people of God to testify to the world. So let's kind of look at the pros and cons of this tabernacle, right? Because I'm, I'm talking about it in a way that, you know, it sounds pretty wonderful, but it had its negatives, you know, it had pros and cons. So first we're going to look at the positive things that the tabernacle provided. First of all, it provided access to God, right? That's how whenever they had a question or they wanted to ask God something, then they would go 
to the uh, tabernacle and they would pray and because God's presence, that Shekinah glory that was smoke by day and fire by night, it would rest above the Holy of Holies. So that's how they knew, you know, God is there. So they would go uh, and that's how they had access to God. And that's where they got their direction as they uh, moved about uh, the wilderness. If there was some place that they were supposed to go, are we supposed to fight these people and take this land or do we not? Are we going to have success? And God will let them know what to do. And uh, so that's a positive. Another positive of the tabernacle is it taught lessons on God's holy perfections that we, that God, because of his holiness and because he is perfect, uh, he had to be approached in a certain way. And there's lessons associated with that in the way that the tabernacle was made, the way it looked, the way it was designed, all of those things. So that's a positive. Another positive was that the tabernacle gave meaning and purpose to the Levitical priesthood, to the Levites, to the nation, right? And we need that. We need to know how to worship God. And God gives life purpose. When you are worshiping, serving the Lord in your life, that is where you find purpose uh, and satisfaction. You're not going to find that in your job. You're not going to find that in your mate. You're not going to find that in your children uh, and furthering your education. All of those things are good. But the true purpose of man is to worship God. And until we are able to do that, we don't have that. And so that's why people who are saved, um, they live a life of purpose. And it doesn't matter what's going on in their life. It may be uh, from the outside, it may look terrible. But there's a joy in their life in that they can see the purpose of God in what they're doing and how that they're serving him. So the tabernacle gave the nation Israel that sense of purpose. And these Hebrews that this letter was written to, they were very accustomed to that kind of purpose-driven life and service surrounding the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple. So those were the positives that came from the tabernacle. But there was also negatives. So what were the negatives of the tabernacle? And it's hard to kind of conceive of something negative associated with what God gives us. But remember, God gave them the law um, as a judgment. It wasn't like, hey, this is something that's really great for you. This is something that I'm giving you in response to what you asked for. And I'm going to use it to teach you a lesson. So here are the, some of the negatives associated with this tabernacle worship. The work never ended. Like I said, the, there was furniture inside the holy place, but there were no chairs because the work never ended. That brazen altar for sacrifices that burned the sacrifices was constantly lit because there's constantly people coming at all hours uh, bringing sacrifice for sin because they would constantly be sinning. And these sacrifices of these uh, lambs, these bulls, these goats, they didn't do away with the issue. They just covered over till the next sin happened. So it was a constant work. Uh, the other negative is that the tabernacle was a shadow made of earthly things. So 
uh, heaven is heavenly. Uh, heaven is eternal. Um, the gold on earth is earthly gold. But we're told that the gold in heaven is pure and it's like transparent glass. So the quality of things in heaven is very different from the quality of things here. And there is no sin or corruption associated with it. So uh, that's another negative is that the tabernacle was subject to corruption. Uh, the priesthood, the people who served were subject to corruption. Um, the tabernacle was just a shadow of the thing, just like that airplane analogy. That shadow is just a shadow. It's not the substance of what the airplane is actually made of. It's just a shadow. Uh, and also another negative is that the tabernacle worship was based on a human priesthood. So I have to go to Joe, uh, who's a Levite, and say, hey, Joe, um, this is my sin. Well, Joe could understand to a certain degree because Joe was a sinner as well. He had to offer the same kind of sacrifices. So not only do I have to offer a sacrifice for myself, but this priesthood, because it was based on a human earthly type priesthood, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. So they themselves were not perfect. So these are the negative things associated with that um, kind of tabernacle and uh, that was provided for them. And you have to understand that this was introduced to the people under what we call the law economy. So they were given a law because they asked for it. And the tabernacle spoke to the need of a bridge, a permanent answer between this separation that was caused by the first Adam. So it should have been a reminder that, you know what? You know, we still have this problem, you know, of we can't approach God unless we go through these certain steps. And all of those steps uh, accentuate the sin issue. They're all a reminder of the, that we have this issue of sin that has to be dealt with. And year after year, month after month, I have to come up to this tabernacle and to this temple and wait my turn, bring my sacrifice for my flock on behalf of me and my family and it's just constant it never really dealt with the sin issue permanently and so that's the levitical priesthood um, so now i want to look at how jesus fulfilled and solved those problems that were established in um, these basic principles that we've uh, discussed. Uh, and also I want to look at maybe comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant, New Covenant, and uh, the Levitical priesthood and also uh, the Melchizedekian priesthood. And I think we're going to see some real interesting things when we look at it from that perspective. Because that's what the letter to the Hebrew is telling them. Hey, this is what you had. This is what we have now that is better. So let's see how Jesus made things better. So Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle had a purpose is to train uh, men and to provide a way for man to interact with God. So how did Jesus fulfill the purpose of the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle we know 
on the inside was beautiful, but it, it had all these layers of beautiful coverings. But the final layer, if you read about it, was a animal skin. So if you were walking through the wilderness and you saw it, it would just look like this giant tent covered with animal skin. Not very attractive at all. But the beauty of it was in what it accomplished. It allowed for interaction between man and God. And the beauty was on the inside. The beauty was seen by those who were able to approach God uh, into the holy place and the holy of holies. And we see this as how Jesus fulfilled that in Isaiah 53. Um, why don't I read that? Let's see what it says about the Lord Jesus in uh, uh, Isaiah 53. And this was um, the prediction of his coming. And Isaiah has a lot to say about the Lord Jesus and what it would be like when he uh, finally arrived. And it's a very significant uh, book to study if you want to learn about um, the Lord. So let me turn there. Isaiah 53 verse 2 let's see what it says it says for he shall grow up before him so he being the Lord Jesus before him being God the Father for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant as a root out of a dry ground uh, he hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. So the Lord Jesus appeared. He wasn't like a physically attractive person. He wasn't like, you know, some movie star looking um, guy. He was just a very average looking man. There was no comeliness that would make people go, wow, he's really good looking. No, just the opposite. And we see in the tabernacle, it was the same way. On the outside, it looked very unattractive, very plain, not even something that you would notice. But, uh, and Jesus was the same way in the body that he took, he took upon himself. Um, and also, the uh, Jesus was made like a man, you know, he was, he says, a body thou hast given to me, so... He came here and he took upon flesh uh, as a man. And that's what the way he appeared to all the people that he interacted with. And in that, he became and he typified the tabernacle. Um, he also bridged the chasm but that was caused by sin. So just like the tabernacle was a way to interact with uh, God, Jesus became a physical tabernacle that allows for man to have access to the Father. And it's really a beautiful uh, analogy. And God wrote that analogy and um, when he created all things, that his son would be the tabernacle, uh, that the tabernacle could be taken down and put back together, and it traveled with the people. And that was a picture of the Lord Jesus one day coming to be amongst the people and to interact with the people and allow the people to interact directly with God. 
and he fulfilled the righteous requirement. So there's righteous requirements to access God. Well, Jesus fulfilled these in his life. Uh, he was the blood sacrifice that was needed to bring man to um, God. He was the substitutionary death. He fulfilled that. And he was the perfect sacrifice uh, on behalf of mankind. So all of it, that's why he is described as the Lamb of God, right? Because he fulfilled all of these things. Whereas before, uh, with the tabernacle, there was only a covering of sin. Jesus did away with sin altogether because he fulfilled the righteous requirement for the blood sacrifice, the substitutionary death, and he became that perfect sacrifice. And all this under the banner of Melchizedek. Wait a minute. Not under the banner of the Levitical priesthood? No. Jesus wasn't a Levite, right? He was of the tribe of Judah. So we see that the Melchizedekian priesthood is very significant, right? In comparison. What is it about the Melchizedekian priesthood that made it so much more special or better than the Levitical priesthood. Was it better? Well, let's take a look and see some of the aspects and we'll see if it was. Uh, first of all, the priest of Melchizedek, uh, he's a priest forever, right? So the, the, that's one thing that we, we learned. Uh, also, the work associated with being a priest of Melchizedek, it ended. Uh, Jesus completed the work. There was no continuation of work that needs to be done. All the work is completed in Christ, and he is sat down at the right hand of the Father. Um, we see in the Melchizedekian priesthood the substance of things and not the shadow of things. So Jesus was the substance, whereas the tabernacle, which is associated with Levitical uh, worship, was a shadow. But Jesus... He is God. He's the son of God. Um, and he brings not the shadow of heaven, but a heavenly calling. He is in heaven and the people who worship him, who are in Christ, they have a heavenly calling. Um, our citizenship is in heaven. Um, it's based on an eternal priesthood, Melchizedek is, not a temporary priesthood. He says that he's a priest forever. He had no beginning or ending. So it's an eternal priesthood. Uh, Jesus has a resurrected body, right? He, he has a body that's a, it's uncorruptible, right? It's an incorruptible body. He has a uh, resurrected body now in heaven. There's a body, there's a man in heaven uh, with a material body that can be touched, can be seen, and uh, that body is incorruptible. And all those who are, are in Christ will be given that same kind of body, uh, an eternal incorruptible body. So Jesus is in heaven. So that's established that uh, the Levitical priesthood, they served on earth, but Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So these are some of the aspects that make the Levitical priesthood different from the Melchizedekian priesthood and how that Jesus fulfilled 
all the things that were lacking in the Levitical priesthood under the banner of Melchizedek. So we have the Old Testament, we have the law, the prophets, the promise, the blood of bulls and goats. Those are the things associated with the Old Testament worship, the Old Testament approach to God. Under the New Testament, we have grace, we have heaven, uh, we have everybody being priests instead of just some people being priests. Everybody is in Christ is equal, equally a priest, man, woman, child. Um, whereas there was a promise, earthly promise in the Old Testament with the Levitical priesthood, we have eternal rewards, heavenly promises associated with uh, being in Christ through because of what Jesus has accomplished. Uh, whereas the Old Testament, there was the blood of bulls and goats that constantly had to be sacrificed. Now we have in the New Testament in Christ, there's only his blood that was shed once for all times, never to be repeated. Uh, everything has been accomplished. So it was established in the Old Testament that we have to have these this substitutionary death. We needed a perfect lamb, not just the lamb that was perfect in appearance, but a lamb that was perfect in that it would satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God and allow for uh, a way to be made to approach God apart from all of this work. And Jesus accomplished and ended that work. God provided that lamb in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why um, it was so significant when John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the people, not just covers it up like we're used to, but he taketh away the sin of the people. So very significant. Also, we can see in um, the fact that the Lord Jesus is this lamb, that he was not just that lamb then, he's eternally that lamb. And we can see that in Revelation. Um, let's take a look here. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read that. I'm going to read the King James Version, Revelations chapter 5, and it says, uh, verse 12, well, actually 1 through 12. And I saw at the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written uh, within and on the backside and sealed with seven seals. And it goes on down to in, in verse 12 saying saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing because the lamb was the one who was worthy to open the seals to reveal the things of god to man and the lamb became that bridge between uh man who was uh, bound up in sin and the righteousness of God. So the Lord Jesus became that lamb for us uh, on our behalf. And all of that was done under the Melchizedekian priesthood. So let's do a little quick comparison of these two priesthoods, the Old Testament and the New Testament priesthood. Um, uh, Levite versus Melchizedek. So under the Levites, um, 
the origin of that priesthood came through the law, through a judgment. But the Melchizedekian, well, it has no beginning and no end. Under the Levites, uh, how they dealt with sin under the Levitical priesthood, they covered it over. You know, there would be a sacrifice that covered your sin. But under the Melchizedekian, the priesthood of the Lord Jesus, sin was done with. It's end. It's ended. It's over. Uh, let's look at the ter compare the term. The term of a Levitical priesthood, well, it was temporary because you always had to have another Levitical priest to take the place of the one that retired because it was ongoing. And so you could only be a Levitical priest for a certain amount of time in your life. And then it was over. Somebody else had to replace you. Well, the term of the uh, priesthood under the Lord Jesus is eternal. There is no end, right? There's, just, there's no need for a replacement. He is it. And in him, are uh, uh, all the other priests are placed in him, in Christ. So his term is forever. There will be no end to that priesthood. Well, let's look at the work that's done on the Levites. You know, they're always working. There was no furniture in the holy place. Um, they were constantly working. It never stopped. But the work with the priesthood of the Lord Jesus under the new covenant, well, it's finished. There, There is furniture, and it's called a throne, and he's sitting on it, right, as the only one worthy to be in that place uh, because he finished the work. So that's obviously better. So the Levitical priesthood, it was delivered by Moses. Moses uh, brought it to the people and he gave the requirements as God gave it to him. And um, there was a certain glory associated with that. It said that Moses' face shined with the glory of God. And, you know, they, he wore this veil over his face because his face was shining with his glory from being in the presence of God. But it was a glory that was fading. It wasn't a glory that was forever. But that's how it was delivered. But how, how about this priesthood of the Lord Jesus? How was it delivered? Well, it came from the Father himself. The Father sent the Son to accomplish these things and to become a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So you can't get any better than that. That's clearly better than coming from Moses. It came from the Father himself. Um, so let's look at the, the Levitical priesthood from the standpoint of corruption. Well, yeah, it was corruptible because you had Levitical priests that were bad. If you read the Old Testament, there were some uh, priests that were considered bad priests and they did evil in the sight of the Lord and they were corruptible and uh, could be corrupted. So there had to be offerings made on behalf of the people and the priest had to offer, offer an offering on behalf of himself. But... Uh, the Lord Jesus under his um, priesthood, it was incorruptible. He's incorruptible. That's why he was a perfect sacrifice. And another important thing to notice, there was a separation on the Levitical priesthood. There was the Levites who were priests, but you never had a king or a ruler that came from the Levitical line because there was a, a bifurcation, a separation between the Levites and who could be a ruler. There's not going to be any kings coming from the Levitical um, tribe. It's, it, was, it was forbidden. So there was you could be a priest 
Or if you're not a Levite, there was a possibility that you could one day be king. But there was never, the two were never to uh, intersect or join one another. In fact, there was a king, there was a good king that uh, he, you know, crossed that line and God took him out because God made that line for a reason. But we notice with the, uh, the Lord Jesus, he's the priest and a king. Why? Because he's under the order of Melchizedek, you know, the king of righteousness, you know, the king of peace. So here we see the priest and king role merged only in the Lord Jesus. So you can see there's a strong, substantial amount of differences between these two priesthoods. Does that make the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood bad? No, it wasn't bad. It was just different, right? It was a shadow of what was to come. It was the shadow we saw on the ground of things that were in heaven. Jesus is the substance of those things. That's why the writer to the Hebrews could tell these Hebrew people, look, we have been in the shadow. We have been uh, concentrating on the shadow of things. Now we have him. Let us consider him and let us focus on him. He was amongst us. We saw him. We interacted with him and we have him forever. So Jesus is, you can say, based on all of this, Jesus is the tabernacle of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Whereas the Levitical priesthood had a tab tabernacle that they built, the Father has provided us with a tabernacle that is better. And it is the Lord Jesus himself. In John uh, 1.14, I think that is described in a way that, um, that I can't describe it. So I'm just going to let the, the word describe it. So let's look at that. John, the Gospel of John, verse 1. And a lot of people know this, so, um, but I'm going to read it because to me, it, it really says it better than I could ever say it. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay. Um, uh, the same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. So in John, Gospel of John 1.14, it says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word that says dwelt among us, that word can literally be translated tabernacled among us. So we see that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. Uh, believers are in Christ and we're now promised heavenly things. That's the point of the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now we have better things. 
And that's what is being described here in the letter to the Hebrews, that Jesus has given us a full, unfettered access to God, to the Father. So what about these promises that were made to Abraham and all the Jews? Are they gone? No, they're not gone. Um, God has assured the nation Israel as well as us that every promise that he's made will be fulfilled. So there's a time that will come where those things will be fulfilled. There's going to be a 1,000-year kingdom on earth. God promises to the nation Israel, and it's going to happen. Uh, the church is going to be removed. Uh, that's going to be the rapture. And there'll be 144,000 Jewish men who just happen to be virgins uh, that are going to be sealed, that'll start proclaiming the gospel message. And that's going to be during the tribulation period. There's going to be a seven-year period of great judgment like the world has never seen. And once the church is removed out of the uh, world, there'll be no testimony of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit's presence is going to be taken out of the world. And if you want to get an idea of what's that, what that's like, uh, it's like um, when you're around people and you have a ministry to them and you can see how that your presence affects the people around you, whether in a way that they like or not like it. But then when you go away and you come back after a period of time and you can see the difference in the people without that influence, you can tell how you can see how that your ministry affected the people around you. Well, multiply that times thousands of people being removed. Well, the, the world is going to go, uh, it's going to go to the pot. It's going to tank pretty bad. And that's what the tribulation period is. And so the only witness is going to be these 144,000 Jewish men. And during that time, you know, proclaiming the gospel will be illegal. Anybody who supports or helps these uh, people, Jewish people, Jewish men that are ministering the gospel and ed trying to educate the people on what's happening, why it's happening, how that the, Jesus is the Messiah and he is the one that was um, proclaimed and they're going to show from the scriptures um, how that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies that were given. And they're going to point this out. And there'll be a lot of people that'll be saved during that time. But it's going to be a very, very godless time. And it's going to be very difficult. And that's why it's called a tribulation. So that's going to happen. It's going to be seven years. If that's going to go on the first three and a half years, they're going to think that um, the Antichrist is actually the Savior. And then he'll reveal who he actually is the last three and a half years. And it'll just get worse. Um, but that's going to happen. And then at the end of that, Jesus is going to return and he's going to judge the Antichrist. He's going to judge all those who, uh, live on the earth at that time that uh, rejected the ministry of these Jewish men. Uh, he's going to judge all of that and he's going to come back in power and glory. And he's going to establish this kingdom, the kingdom on earth that he promised to the nation Israel and Moses and, you know, uh, all these people that were uh, lived under that Old Testament that were you know, waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. 
they're going to have their resurrected bodies and they're going to enter into this kingdom. And there'll be people who are just like me and you that live through the uh, tribulation, that survive it, and they're going to go into the kingdom. So you're going to have this mixed company of resurrected saints uh, living with like just regular people <laughs> who made it through the tribulation. And it's going to be a very unique time. And for a thousand years, Jesus is going to establish that kingdom and he will rule over that kingdom. Uh, a descendant of David will be made king. They'll have temple worship, all the things that are associated with the Levitical priesthood. Well, why is that? If we have this new, better thing under Melchizedek, why are these people doing that? Well, they're doing that because God promised them that, that they would have it, and God will fulfill every promise. Now, the church age, all of us who are Melchizedekian priests, we're going to be in heaven in what's called the New Jerusalem. That's what we're going to be doing. But they will receive their promises here on earth. And they will have these sacrifices that look back to what Jesus accomplished, right? The way we, when we take the bread and the cup, we look back to what he accomplished on our behalf. They're going to do these same sacrifices with uh, uh, the Levitical priesthood, and, and it's going to look back to what Jesus did to fulfill it. And again, it's going to minister to the fact that the Melchizedekian priesthood is better, Right? And God is going to send that message home to them as a nation of people to say, this is what you asked for, but this is what I gave you. So once that thousand years is done, that lesson is uh, hammered home. Then at the end of that thousand years, we're all brought together under the same priesthood of Melchizedek in Christ. And everybody is made one in Christ for eternity. And that's what's going to happen. That's the the that's what's um, that's the plan and purpose of God is laid out in Scripture. So we can see that the Levitical priesthood, though it uh, had its flaws, right? Uh, it still ministered to the people. Uh, we're just fortunate, and that's the message to the letter of Hebrews that hey, we have something far better. Let's embrace that. Let's live our lives in the light of this better that we have. We have heavenly things. And that's the message that the writer is sending to them. So hopefully this uh, review of some of these basic principles in comparison of these two um, kind of priesthoods, these two covenants, helps you to understand better and gives you some context for what it is that the writer to the letter of Hebrews is communicating to these people. And so try to keep that in mind and understand that there needed to be this transition from the old economy to the new and how wonderful this letter really is. How much detail, how much it tells us about not only the Lord Jesus and how that he's better, but also about our the plan and purpose for us, for those who are in Christ and how that we go directly to heaven. We don't have to spend a thousand years on earth uh, relearning the lesson. We go directly to his presence in the new Jerusalem. That's what we have, a heavenly calling. 
and it's better. So with that said, uh, we're going to go ahead and close. Uh, we'll start back up next time uh, in Hebrews chapter 7, starting with verse 11. And we're going to look at uh, some of the details and the comparison like we did today of these two priesthoods and hopefully uh, in light of this lesson that'll make a lot more sense and it'll be more meaningful meaningful to us when we study it so uh, let's close father thank you for this lesson thank you for your grace thank you for your provision we pray father that you would make this to be a blessing to those who hear it that you would bless your word and lead us in grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.